from the dark web to your radio dial. You are listening to CyberTalk Radio on News 1200 WOAI. Welcome to CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. This week, we're going to be talking about data privacy, protection, and uh, all sorts of things that my guest is intimately qualified to talk about. He may have a license to practice law in the state of Texas and other places. The comments he makes today will not be legal advice. If you'd like legal advice, hire an attorney. Don't listen to what they say on the radio. So uh, thank you for joining us, Justin. (laughs) I think that's absolutely right. Thanks for having me, Brett. Yes. So you you went to law school, but then why did you end up in law school? Because you you didn't take the route most folks. It wasn't like you you didn't major in English and then wonder what you're going to do with your life. You were doing something different before you decided to go to law school. Yeah, that's right. So I had long had an interest in uh, systems administration, just computer management generally, which came from playing video games as a kid. And back in the day when you had a, uh, you know, DOS 5 system in order to play a game, the first thing you had to do was write a boot disk and free up enough expanded memory to get that game to run. So 640K will be enough for everyone, yeah, Justin. Yeah, there you go. Uh, so that interest I parlayed into, you know, side jobs working in database administration, things like that throughout college. Um, graduated from college, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do yet. So I went back into the uh, IT support world. Um, worked for a couple of large companies, a couple of startup companies. Um, it was after that I decided it was kind of time to do something for the long run. And that's when I took one of those easy routes instead of, you know, setting up a company to do something crazy and new, went to an established practice. The thing that brought me to law, though, was the ability to see something new every day, see new stuff each time. You know, some of it's same patterns, but working on new things is what really got me excited. Um, and so today I kind of marry my interest and my background in technology with my practice of law. Yeah. So you, you ended up in this uh, data privacy space, which no one's talking about these days. So you <laughs> must be really, really bored. Yeah, I feel like I, I arrived, you know, if, if only I had arrived uh, a couple of years earlier in the space, I would have had a lock on it. Um, but it's, you know, it's the hot topic. And I think that you get the words cybersecurity thrown around very easily these days. And I don't think... I think it's very easy to use the words data privacy, cybersecurity, but I don't think a whole lot of folks understand how it impacts them and their business. And I don't even think the legal profession has a great handle on what set of services, what set of regulations really we mean when we say, uh, you know, always a cybersecurity lawyer. It's still this, you know, this phrase that hasn't been given a whole lot of meaning. So I think we really have to kind of expand our understanding what cybersecurity means. It's not just, you know, a network system, a firewall, intrusion prevention. And the same with privacy. I think they're, they go hand in hand. And I, I feel like the data privacy is getting lumped together with cybersecurity at this point, but people have been selling information long before the internet. I mean, people have been stood in parking lots and counted cars going in and out by hand and selling that information, or even writing down the license plate on your car because it was parked in a public lot and selling that information to somebody. So this this concept of data privacy, because there been a the internet has enabled some changes with the ease of collecting or speed of collecting or the maybe people's understanding that information is being collected uh, now everyone feels like uh, what i'm running into conversations is cybersecurity is data privacy can you help us kind of, uh, think uh, through or explain to the audience from your perspective like what's the difference really between data privacy and cybersecurity so i think you hit dead on it which is we don't really even need to say data privacy is really just privacy 
we don't really need to say cybersecurity. It's just security. We just started adding cyber in front of a whole lot of things because to differentiate the medium in which they were being used, right? So, you know, people just like you, people were stealing records back in the day. People were breaking in and stealing financial information. You used to be able to do a whole lot with a stolen credit card than you can today. Um, it's just the technology and the medium that's changed. Um, but no, I think you're ex absolutely right that they're inextricably linked. Data privacy and cybersecurity are just flip sides of the same activity. So what do you, what's cybersecurity good for? Preventing people from getting access to information. What's data privacy? Regulating people's access to information. Now, we look at them from different sides. Typically, when you call it security side and privacy side, the privacy side focuses on people who willingly transmit information under a constrained set of obligations or permissions. So we talk about it being a privacy issue when I say, Brett, you can use my name in this way and you can use it with these people, but you can't share these things about me with other people. We talk about that being privacy because it has a, a, a limited set of consent. Security, we focus on denial to those who have no consent at all. But really, they're two sides of the same coin. The ability to control the use of your information, I think, really is seen reasonably seen as a security issue as much as a privacy issue. Yeah. So we've, we've talked some on the program about European data privacy laws. They've got GDPR, which goes into effect this year. And if you wanted to hear some more in-depth about that one, uh, go look up our, our past episodes on www.cybertalkradio.com or uh, iTunes podcast or Pocket Cast. But Justin, here, uh, can you help our, our audience understand uh, the U.S. data privacy piece? Is it one federal law? Is it each state doing different stuff? As as folks are, are trying to figure out with Facebook or, and, or these other things right now, or Google and your right to be forgotten and all these, how is that uh, being looked at across the U.S. right now? So, yeah, and, and thanks for sparing us from turning this into a GDPR spot. I tried to read it the other day, um, and it really does put you to sleep if you try to start and just read the code straight for you. It, uh, it feels like it's clearly written, but uh, wow. It's dense. Um, so getting back to it. So the, the big difference you have to understand, I think, is that the European community views privacy as a fundamental right, just like we have our, our, you know, our cherished amendments to the Constitution. In Europe, they've said privacy and the ability to control how your information about your thoughts, political affiliation, sexual orientation, that's a fundamental human right. Um, in the U.S., instead, we look at privacy, you know, there's some rights to privacy that the courts have found, which traditionally deal with, can the government look at these activities of yours? The rights that we have in the U.S. typically don't apply at a fundamental level to how companies can use your information, to how companies can ma manage records and sets of information that you've given them. So in the U.S., privacy is what's called sectoral. So we regulate privacy based on the nature of the information. So we have a set of regulations for the healthcare industry. And that's because we say, hey, these are patient records. They're special, they're sensitive. Let's regulate how people use them. We have financial regulations that are a different set of obligations. And we go, hey, these are financial records. Let's make sure that companies have an obligation to secure them. And underlying it, we have a general rule about consumers that's enforced by the FTC, which basically says, if you tell consumers you're gonna use their information one way, you can't use it in a way that's completely different. And that's really just about enforcing people's you know, businesses, practices, and promises. And what's odd, I think, that you'll find is that this sectoral-based regulation, we're still just talking about securing data. 
right? Like we just said, it's, it's all just a set of data, but we're applying wildly different regulation regimes and obligations based on whether it's a patient record or a financial record. And the truth is we all think both are very valuable. So if it's my, my name, my address, my phone number, my social security number, and those are being, and I give them to a bank, the bank has to deal with those differently than if I gave them to my doctor. The different set of things to secure potentially the same information. It, it's going to have a lot of overlap. But yeah, it's going to be the bank is subject to a set of regulations that deal with how they manage that data and what their liability is if they fail to secure it properly. And then your doctor, your hospital, you know, they'll have that SSN too, but it'll be tied to, you know, your physical exam, your checkup, your x-rays. Yeah. They're going to have a different set of regulations. And these these aren't just regulations about, hey, you have to secure it. They're policies, procedurals, safeguards that are across the organization. So you end up with, in one way, I think it's interesting that you end up with different regulations that try to find best practice, you know, different ways of getting best practices across through regulation. On the other side, you know, if we're going to talk about there being some, you know, esoteric set of best practices by having a bunch of different regulations, we're clearly missing them somewhere. Yeah. So as you go into your doctor and you give the information to your doctor, but say if your doctor has to refer you out to a specialist, they have you sign a, a HIPAA release. Mm -hmm. Or if you go to your, your bank and they're going to refer you out to a separate mortgage lender, they have you sign some type of release. So this is these are I'm going to call them information sharing agreements. Uh, those are private party contracts, though. There's no my understanding, at least specific requirements of like your doctor's only allowed to share certain information with the specialist, but not all the information. That's right. So it'll be well, it'll be the information that they identify in the form. So and those forms are creatures of regulation, right? There's a there's a standard rule that says under HIPAA, which is the healthcare regulation law that you know, in order to share information, you have to have this type of consent. And you'll see pretty much the same form used across the place. And there's also information that's not regulated by HIPAA that the doctor can share with other agencies without, you know, any particular consent coming from you. Um, so it's only the information that's regulated. It's nothing else. And the form of consent's typically prescribed. But you're right, it's, it's going to be, you know, we we see these creatures and we get used to thinking that like, oh, these support and protect our data or are examples of our consent, but they're really confined to very specific types of data. Everything else is just commercial agreements. You agree with Facebook, you can share and use my data this way when you sign up. All of the, you know, most of our information about our lives that we share that's available, that's part of the privacy question is not something that's subject to a government regulation. Yeah. You're listening to 1200 WAI. This is Cyber Talk Radio, and this week we are discussing data privacy. If you just tuned in, you can catch this program on Tuesday, April 24th. It'll be up on our website at www.cybertalkradio.com, as well as on iTunes Podcasts or Pocket Casts or whatever other your favorite podcasting app is on a Android device. So we, we started off with an uh, overview on uh, data privacy versus cybersecurity. Uh, we're going to continue uh, that conversation now here into the... Uh, News, traffic, and weather update we will have for you at the bottom of the hour. Um, joined this week by Justin Freeman, a network and security engineer turned attorney. Uh, and he's uh, has a practice that's focused in the data privacy and the kind of public policy space related to uh, all of these different things these days. So, Justin, we were talking through some of the stuff of how the U.S. fundamentally thinks of things differently uh, from Europe. So when we're, we're going through... 
we've been signing these information sharing agreements for years, whether it's with our credit card. When you sign up for a credit card in there, it says your credit card company can share information with somebody or you sign up for different services. This, your information is getting shared around. And that's all legal contractual sharing uh, with this Cambridge Analytica thing that they've been talking about on the news lately with Facebook. Some of the folks will be familiar with this one. It's been called a data breach. As as a guy in this world, though, it doesn't feel like a data breach to me. It feels like authorized sharing where someone didn't really authorize what they were sharing. But that seems different than a data breach to me. No, I, I totally agree. And I think that data breach is becoming an anomalous concept. And really what you're talking about is sort of unauthorized use of data. And this is where the European law gets right to it. The European law says the person whose data it is has to be the one who clearly and very you know, discreetly says, my data may be used in this fashion. And that list has to be pretty exclusive and specific. Um, so what you have in the US with regards to Facebook, and I don't have uh, full details about you know what's gone on between these three parties, but you basically have people willingly sharing their information all along. The scope exceeded what a user originally thought their data was going to be, or the way in which they originally thought their data would be shared. So you have you and I using Facebook and agreeing that, hey, they can take analytics from see how long we linger on a post, what we click on, who our friends are, what we've liked in the past. And then you have a researcher who Facebook contracts with, and the researcher says, part of that deal says, hey, people who click on your app, you can get their data. And that's part of our agreement with Facebook too. When you use a game, when you play any of those quizzes, those quizzes extract your information. That's why they're on there. They're not just someone generating free things for you to have fun with. So yeah, that if researcher- the, If the price is free, you're paying something for it. You should really stop and think, what is it that you are paying? Yeah. That's right. You know, you are the product is what they, they usually say, but it's really that your data is what's valuable. Yeah. And these data sets, you know, it's it all basically links back to advertising. We can figure out with a high degree of specificity what it is you might be interested in, which isn't always a bad thing. I mean, if ads are relevant to you, hey, it's not so bad. I, I often oh. joke that you're using Facebook properly. If none of the ad content is relevant to you, then your privacy has been protected yeah. by whatever tools you're using. So anyways, you have Facebook giving this effectively transferring the information from you to the researcher who then turned around and without authorization from either Facebook or you gave it to Cambridge Analytica. Now, so each point of transfer was someone willingly giving the information over, but it ends up with someone who has, you know, potentially really no right to it, but no one has the ability to pull it back. And there's no regulation in the U.S. that says that, you know, you as an individual whose information is now in Cambridge Analytica's hands have a right to that data or to fix it or to modify it. Um, the researcher broke his agreement with Facebook, but Facebook's the one who can probably enforce that rather than anyone else. Yeah. And now that the cat's out of the bag, you know, the data's out of the nest. I don't know exactly what kind of enforcement they could take that would be meaningful to anyone whose data was exposed. Yeah. I mean, it, it's almost uh, like if you, you ran a, a headline article in the New York Times or something like that. And then a few days later, somebody's like, well, the headline's not true. We need to go take that back. Like it, it already ran. It's out there. The information is is gone, uh, and you, you can't go put the cat back in the bag, proverbially at this point. Yeah, that's right. And so that you know, there, there's two things there. One is, you know, when it's untrue, at least there's there's some legal framework for you know slandering people, where you can say, hey, that cost me customers, or we value our reputation. 
but there's not the same framework for valuing privacy information that is true about us in the United States. It is a currency, right? It is, we just talked about, it is the currency of the modern free service age, but we don't have a way in our legal system that's very sophisticated around valuing it. And that's part of, you know, that's part of the difference. The European system, I don't, I wouldn't say that they had, that they solved it by any means, that they had a way of valuing the, da the data. Um, but what they've done instead is say, how about this? Fines will be enormous if you exceed the user's consent and we'll just go down, down that road. So fines are um, up to 5% of your global revenues for breaching the GDPR regulations, which provide uh, ultimately for individuals to have consent about transferring information and the ability to update it, change it, delete it. That's that right to be forgotten. Um, so they've just said, hey, there's a really big stick that we can hit you with if you step out of bounds of the user's consent. But I don't think that really solves the problem of we don't have a way to value this currency, even though it has a lot of value. Yeah. So in, in, in the U.S., uh, California uh, years ago passed a, a notification thing on consumer. If you have consumer information and you're a California consumers and you're a California business, uh, that you've got to notify folks within a reasonable time. If somebody gained unauthorized access to the, your information that you had given to that business. That's not consistent, though, in my understanding, across the whole U.S. And so there, uh, from a, a notification perspective, if folks out there um, have given information to a business, that business has the information stolen, uh, is it, the, in my understanding, not the case that every business has to notify you uh, if they're depending on where they're operating? That's right. And so who has to notify you varies a lot. You know, most data, unauthorized access to data, data breaches, we'll just keep using the word for now. Yeah. Uh, happen from wildly different angles. So it's not just, I'm a company with a trove of data and someone got into my chest of data and they got yours. Um, it can be an ex-employee who had data. Uh, you know, it can be a current employee. It can be a third-party subcontractor. It can be, you know, a customer. That researcher is basically a customer of Facebook's. So there's there's all these different pathways to your data. You know, once you we all are aware that it gets copied all around. It's not like there's only one record set in any given company. So who has to notify is different under multiple state laws. Um, how you notify is different across the board, and in what time frame you have to notify varies. And so California, just by way of example, has the basically a form like you must fill this form out for each person, and that's kind of helpful because it's prescriptive and you don't have to think too much about, hey, there's a statute. How do I interpret this? I want to get these notices out. I want to do the right thing. You just fill in the form and mail it to everyone. The problem is that Virginia also has a form and New Jersey has different things. And you end up with kind of an over notification or you end up having to customize, the notif customize your notifications based on where the person whose data was leaked is from. And the reason we have this is because there's no federal data breach law. So there's a legal concept called preemption, which basically says if there's a federal law that deals with the subject, then the states can't change that, at least not very much. Yeah. Um, because there's no federal law about reporting a data breach, every state gets to have its own. And we have this diaspora, these fundamentally different regulatory frameworks. So, you know, that's one of the areas where in the United States, even if you say, hey, what are your expectations about your privacy? Well, from state to state, we can't even have the same expectation about what someone has to do if they discover or are involved in breaching our privacy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the 50 states in the U.S. are not homogenous, for sure. <laughs> uh, 
Um, and the, the policies and laws, uh, I mean, our neighbors here in Texas, Louisiana, even have a whole different system of law in the state of, I mean, as far as I can tell as a non-attorney. Oh, no, that's right. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> I can't, I'd speak some things in Creole or French if my French wasn't so horrible. Yes. So, so with all of these different things, if I'm a, a business owner and I'm say I'm selling t-shirts online here in the U S and I've got the customers in all 50 states, and somebody breaks in and, and gets all of those records, and they've got the your name and the address and the number of T-shirts I ship to people. Maybe I've got the credit card stuff is off separate, so it's not a PCI data breach, but mm-hmm. it's your name, your address, your phone number, all of those sorts of things. Like, do I just put my head in the sand? Uh, like, what? I mean, how do, how do folks go approach that sort of, of stuff? Well, so it ends up being a, you know, the first scenario is find out if there's anything else that record set's tied to, you know, list of names and addresses is not usually as big of a deal. I mean, you're talking phone book directory information. Now in the EU, totally different world. If it can identify an individual, it's regulated data, it's personally identifiable information, it's subject to the GDPR. You have this whole, you know, you have a massive bureaucratic framework that you've got to deal with and comply with to avoid you know, potential financial risk that's really material. In the U.S., a little bit different because it's going to be based on that type of data. Um, If it's not a federal regulation, if it wasn't patient records, if it wasn't financial records, the stuff we're all familiar with, children's education records, that's another good sectoral uh, regulatory uh, framework that we have. Um, Then you're basically looking at the state laws. And again, that's the problem. The state law notification requirements, the trigger, what you have to notify about is going to vary from state to state. They're homogenizing a little bit, but still most things are more than name, address, or telephone number. They're usually, there's usually it's that, something that can identify an individual with some kind of additional unique information about the person. Something that we get, we think gives rise to a notion of privacy or financial security. But not if they ordered a hundred pink t-shirts or not. Yeah, usually, usually you're not going to go down that road that yeah. the, you know, the order information, but this is where we get to like, you know, over notification. Is it a bad thing? I, I'll, every company kind of has to make its own, I guess, moral ethical decision outside of, Hey, we have a clear legal obligation. Yeah. But whether you notify when you don't have to or not, um, I will say that I think consumers these days are kind of, you know, blase about being told about a data breach. Yeah, I'm, almost numb to it. Yeah, you you, you get your notice at least, you know, who hasn't gotten a notice at least once a quarter in the last several years that yet another of your providers has leaked your information or, you know, some website you use notifying you that your username and password is compromised. And I don't, I, I'd be curious, I wish we had some statistics. Did any of these notifications, any of these major data breaches in the news spur anyone to go and use a password management tool to stop using the same password across multiple sites? I hope so. <laughs> so do yeah. I. I mean, like the shopping behavior, like you look at TJ Maxx or Target or a number of these where they've had the big credit card breaches, it hasn't really changed uh, people shopping at those stores over the long run in a material manner. That's right. We're just, we're, we have this fundamental, I think we have a fundamental security problem in our our citizen registry which is that you have an ssn that let you know is the key to your financial security it's the key to preventing fraud and it's very readily accessible it's very easy to gather up ssns through various breaches correlate them with other information and engage in fraudulent activity take out you know open loans accounts steal identities and we start we basically we knew we had too big of a problem didn't do anything to fix it and I, 
you know, it's one of those the cats out of the bag that we just live with data breach being kind of a common threat. There's not much that we as a consumer can do about it, we feel like. I just hope that it doesn't spur individuals to throw their arms up in the air and give up the rest of their security posture. Cause, and, and I feel like that's maybe what's underlying a lot of the data privacy, you know, the lack of concern about our data privacy, which is we all kind of, we all say we care about it, but we willingly give all of our information, our diagnostics, our daily travels, our interests over to free websites and would prefer to use their content. And I think most people know that it's their information that's getting harvested. They might not know the details of what powerful big data analytics can do with that information, but I think we've kind of, as a society, made our decision, which is we'll deal with the risk, we'll deal with not being able to mitigate it personally, um, but I hope that we still understand there's another layer of security that we can take responsibility for, or things can get a lot worse. Yeah, so we're gonna go ahead and take a quick break here uh, at the bottom of the hour for a news traffic and weather update, and uh, Justin and I will be back to talk uh, data breaches, cybersecurity, and, and what uh, proactive measures should a business be taking uh, in order to keep those records safe uh, that your customers have trusted you with. Welcome back to CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. Joined this week by Justin Freeman, uh, attorney and network engineer turned attorney as well, uh, who focuses on data privacy and uh, cybersecurity and the before the bottom of the hour break there with news, traffic, and weather, we talked uh, about data privacy kind of across America and how some of the things are, are different from many of the things you may be seeing in the news these days about the European data privacy laws that are coming out. Uh, and uh, also as you, you have these uh, data leakage uh, through Facebook and uh, all those other areas in the news lately, uh, how some of that stuff ties into uh, what we have going on here in the, the U.S. and how maybe you should think about it as a uh, individual out there or what you need to think about for your business. Uh, while he does have a license to practice law, he is not practicing it on the air here. So if you would like to talk to him, you can uh, call him or his firm and uh, engage them. But uh, this is not legal advice here on the radio. Uh, we're going to now in this segment of the program talk some about cybersecurity. Who do we have to worry about and what should we be looking at and trying to do to protect all that information so we don't have to deal with these data privacy laws because we didn't leak or breach or share or overshare or uh, whatnot. And some cybersecurity things you can do to fix that, but some of these things are just private party contracts. They're, you're, it's not a cybersecurity problem. It's an information sharing. You've got to decide what your customers will allow you to share and why, and they've got to be okay with that, and you should be okay with it. So, Justin, thank you again for uh, coming to join us uh, on the program this week. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Brett. Yeah. So cybersecurity, everyone's like, this is just going to be some Russian hacker or some Chinese hacker. But that's not all you need to protect from on the cybersecurity side. And as we were talking before the break and then some show prep, uh, many of these cybersecurity breaches are from employees. That's right. Or so people that become former employees. There's there's two, you know, if I if I want to just jump ahead, there are two big takeaways on cybersecurity in my mind, and we can go through the details. One is you can't fully defend yourself. That era ended a long time ago. So it's anyone can be breached. And those are your nation states. We call them advanced persistent threats. They've got access to cyber weapons, just like they've got access to conventional weapons. And you can't do anything about it. You can't fight Russia, China, North Korea. 
But there's a lot of cyber threats you can protect against. And foremost among those typically tends to be insider threats. And that always sounds like malicious, disgruntled employees who are out to get you. And you might say, well, I don't have any of those. We we have a really good working relationship here. Um, But that's not really how the insider threats tend to play out. It tends to be an employee who is a little careless here or there. An employee who is the victim of a crime. Their laptop got stolen. But they took that laptop out from work and it had your files, your customers' files, patient records, financial information, bank statements, whatever on it, and it wasn't encrypted. Yeah. So those the insider threats are not are often not malicious. It's not extortionist. It's ba- it's basically, you know, employees, colleagues, business partners who had a lapse in their cybersecurity posture. Because we haven't, we don't all think of our daily use of devices as having a cybersecurity posture, but that's where the majority, for example, in the healthcare industry of data breaches, data leaks came from, were insider, so-called insiders or inside threats. It was, you know, employee who got their laptop stolen. They took it where it shouldn't go. Yeah, or a moment of weakness is we're all busy, some days busier than others. We have things going on either at work or at home that are stressing you out. And it and you're just going, I have to get this done by some deadline today. And you're going along as quick as you can. And you're careless about uh, reading or double checking some things so it was with an email. And then you, you see this message come in from mm-hmm. your boss going, I have to have this in 10 minutes. And you're like, oh, man, I've already got so much stuff going on. I'm trying to get to my kid's thing. I got a meeting with the school administration in a few minutes. And you just click on that link in the email. There you go. Yeah, or you hit reply to the email, and you don't really read the email address that day because you're in a hurry, and you mm-hmm. share some personal information. Um, or like it looks like a, w- there was a phishing attack that came into to our business. It looked like it was coming from our uh, payroll and healthcare provider that said, hey, Brett, can you provide an updated spreadsheet with all of your employees' names, birth dates, and social security numbers so we can ensure that our records match? And this was during like benefits reenrollment period. So then it's in like in there. It said yep. if you, if you don't we don't have this information by uh, the end of the afternoon today, then the, some of your employees are going to lose healthcare coverage. That's a so good one. That, that was, really creates a motivation to respond. And it really was from it was they were spoofing the people that actually provide our healthcare information. Mm. This is like that data leakage out there in the world. Somewhere someone knows that we're a customer of a certain payroll mm-hmm. and healthcare provider. That's that one is nasty. That yeah. is very targeted. Yeah, that's very, more than just your Nigerian prince. Yeah, no, this was good good spear phishing, <laughs> but this is the kind of stuff that's happening these days. That's right. Yeah. yeah so I, that's your insider threat. It's like uh, I talk about this in the radio and I, I do this for my day job enough that I didn't get fooled by that. But that one I was like, Ooh, yeah, those guys are good. I think and you know, spear phishing is <laughs> that's a that's kind of the best example I've heard recently of like how good it's gotten. I mean, I've seen progressively nice ones, but that that is that is kind of the trifecta of uh, you know a call to action, personal you know motivation to respond. You know, my family, my my insurance will lapse, um, and enough background information to make it seem credible. So that yeah. you just that's what suspends your disbelief is you know or, or lets you get through is when you have that background information just close enough that the rest of the message, the urgency is able to strike the person. Um, but I, you know, it, it's everything about our employees. Cybersecurity posture is now part of our organization organization's posture. So it's not just, did they avoid clicking that email? It's not just, did they avoid taking that laptop out of the office? It's also, have they been connecting to public Wi-Fi access points, which are very easily hacked and, woefully insecure um 
Are they picking up USB devices and plugging them into their home personal devices? Uh, yeah, we had a they were plugging it into their office device. And yeah. we we had a, a guest in the program, uh, Tom Desaad here from a company called Digital Offense. We talked about social engineering and that. And um, that program, we covered the drop test, which uh, mm-hmm. the, say you see a USB stick laying out in the parking garage that says confidential files on it. Please don't take that and plug it into your computer. Um, and you can listen to that that replay of uh, our conversation with Tom in depth. Uh, on that topic uh, on iTunes podcast, Pocket Cast, or on our website at www.cybertalkradio.com. That's a really good one, I think, because everyone seems to think, you know, oh, it won't happen to me, or my employees aren't that bad. And until you have a robust cybersecurity policy, until you have some posture, some some games, whether they're tabletop exercises or war games or sample uh, spear phishing threats, you don't really know. But just to be clear, that drop test worked on Iranian nuclear physicists in charge of a covert nuclear development program. So yeah. probably your employees may not have the level of suspicion that they did. Yeah, I'm, I'm tempted to uh, drop some around the parking garage here. So we uh, record CyberTalk Radio from the, the Geekdom building in downtown San Antonio. It's got a parking garage attached to it. I'm tempted to drop some there that just pop up the, uh, the Norman guy, I think. Is that his name from uh, the Jurassic Park? He's like, ah, 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 ah. Just to, if, if you people plug it in, they'd say that and then uh, yeah, re- re- point them over to the website and to that episode of the program where they can listen and learn not to do that again. There you go. Those are the, that's a, you know, those are the great examples of exercises that businesses need to engage in or find partners to engage in to help their employees understand. Yearly training is one thing, and it's great to make everyone take an hour to three hours and sit and watch web videos and click C, 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 B, C, C. Okay. That one was B too. Yeah. And then move on with their day while they, they just mentally shut down when they take the training. Those trainings are important. I don't want to sound like I'm completely, you know, knocking them, but the live exercises that catch people in the act, those are what get people to stop and think and go, Oh, now I've learned. That's what causes people to learn in this space. If they're not familiar with these principles, the abstract, the reading about it really doesn't cause them to change their patterns of behavior. No, I mean, businesses have fire drills. And if you're in a big building and it's your own campus, most companies run fire drills on a fairly regular basis. Exactly right. They have floor wardens that are responsible for counting the number of people in that floor in that area and ensuring they get out of the facility. Schools run fire drills. I don't see people running cyber drills though and there's no cyber floor warden and really i mean that's probably more of a threat to the businesses these days than than the building catching fire with sprinklers and all the rest of the advancements we have in building safety i really love that analogy because it's very on point you can't prevent all buildings from setting on fire you can't prevent your network from being hacked what's important what saves lives what saves your business is how you respond to your building being on fire how you respond to your network being compromised and those are exactly the type of drills that you, if you're not doing, if you have a mid-sized organization, even a small organization, you need to get your team together and figure out who's going to respond, how you're going to respond, because the clock is ticking when you have a data compromise. You won't know what's going on for quite a while. And just being prepared to respond is one of those most critical elements. It's the thing that will backstop and help you know, overcome any other deficiency that you may have had. And you're going to have deficiencies. You can't fireproof a building. You can't, you know, completely firewall a network. There's just no way to, to, you can wait till your time is up and hope that your ticket doesn't come up sooner than later. 
but it will and response is the way the key key play in dealing with it yeah so i mean on that that insider side of things uh you've got to worry about uh making it easy for people to uh stay safe even when they are in a hurry or they have are having a stressed out uh day because they build either good habits or you've got some controls and systems in place that help help them along the way but so let's say as you said the hackers are going to get in but hackers don't always get in and then exfiltrate information. So hackers get in. They don't actually take any information out of the system. Um, this ends up, in my feeling, in a really big gray area reporting requirement. Like if they got in, they didn't leave with anything. They just wandered around inside the building effectively. They wandered around inside your network. Mm-hmm. And then either you caught them and escorted them out before they took anything or they decided that your place was boring and they just left. Well, so I'll say generally they don't decide it's boring and just leave. Yeah. They leave a little something behind in case they ever want to come back. Um, and that's really what you see these these actors do is they get in, they scope a network, and they don't steal data right away. The sophisticated ones don't steal data right away. The gray hats, people out there testing systems, sometimes they're security researchers, uh, your low-level hackers, sometimes even organized crime. They're the ones who, oh, we're in, let's get the data, let's let's smash the window, grab the diamonds, and run. The advanced threats leave a way to get back in. They explore, they poke around, they see what's going on. And those are the ones I think you really have to be worried about because they're building up the ability to use your networks or your data for something much more sinister. Now, you mentioned a reporting requirement. Generally, you're not going to have a reporting requirement around someone attempted unauthorized access or gained it. Again, you do under some regulatory frameworks. And sometimes those are really vague. HIPAA was originally written with a requirement that you be able to, you know, report uh, attempted, un, un, you know, unauthorized access attempts over the network. And that seemed the way it was originally written. Some people took it to the extreme and thought that pings over a network would qualify because it was an attempt to access your network from an unknown place that wasn't authorized and it's harmless network traffic, right? Um or fat fingering uh, passwords to a database might be kind of reportable events that you needed to catalog and be able to report. So there's a difference, I think, both in the regulations and just in a world of common sense between unauthorized access attempts that are material and ones that aren't, ones that are meaningful, that are indicators of a compromise of having a bigger issue of there being no security or safety for the information that you're you're keeping. One of the other things is that this is kind of the dirty little secret to my mind about data breaches and companies responding to them. In most cases, you're not going to have evidence of exfiltration and you're not going to have evidence that there was no exfiltration. You're going to be left in this kind of lurching void where maybe your network was compromised. You're pretty sure it was. You see all the signs of compromise. Don't seem to be live attackers there right now by the time you've discovered it. And you can't find any evidence that records were exfiltrated and you're tracing back through forensics, trying to figure out from the systems they accessed, from the logs you still see, what accounts they used, what they might have had access to. And then you're building up a story and trying to figure out who you should notify, whether you have an obligation. And at the same time, you're running your business and trying to respond. That's really when you need to start getting some some experienced partners involved. And that's forensics firms, may include legal, legal counsel, May include, uh, you know, security researchers, uh, your existing support personnel. Um, that's that's really the key, though. Is most breaches 
aren't identified while they're walking in the door. And apparently we're getting a lot better about this across the board. The last study I saw, and I think it was through Axios on Codebook, which is a great little newsletter if you haven't seen it, showed that we were finding breaches a lot more close to the time of entry these days than when we are in the last few years. So we're finding them within, you know, six weeks now instead of six months or more. We're, we're actually catching up in terms of identifying and notifying, noticing uh, breaches in our security. Yeah, so I have, I have a false hope theory on that one. Go ahead. So if you get breached and they pop up ransomware on your computer, you notice right away. <laughs> and if you add up all of those ransomware really quick notices along with all of the still really slow notices for the advanced persistent threats, the average goes down and the median goes down. So <laughs> I I don't know that we're actually getting better at catching the smart guys, but the people that are like, hey, Justin, I'd like two and a half Bitcoin, please. Yeah, I'd like you, you to know right you've away. been breached. Yeah. Look over here because I need your money. <laughs> yeah. I think we've also seen, I'll say just on that note, apparently there's been a shift towards those type of activities and by those i mean the ransomware activities even by these advanced actors um a lot of them apparently a lot of these nation states are apparently taking the cue from the organized crime side of the dark net and are at least mimicking ransomware attacks so i think russian crime uh russian state-sponsored hacking organizations are the ones that are most suspected of doing this which is disguising rans or disguising attacks which are really just destruction attacks as if they're ransomware there was one that was uh unleashed on ukraine which didn't even have a payment mechanism in the code back end so it was clearly not actually ransomware because people who push ransomware do it to get paid this is a criminal enterprise yeah. they don't do it just to destroy files that's what states with weapon systems do yeah i mean but you look at some of these economically unstable countries or uh, and folks with lower gdp like a north korea um, and for them if they're able to ransom a billion or five billion or ten billion u.s dollars from businesses using ransomware that's actually real to their economy which oh, is kind of scary and that's the type of money you could effectively run ransomware um, at a broad scale across the internet and make that type of money um it's yeah we've seen a drop off in ransomware over the last 12 months um the hypothesis on this one right now is it's more profitable for the criminals to stay in your network and run coin mining software on your yeah. computer than it is for them to pop up a ransom and make you pay so as a business if you've noticed your electricity bill going up here in <laughs> in san antonio over the winter where you're like i'm not running my air conditioner right now why is my electricity bill up your computers may have coin mining software on them and they may be running your electricity bill up because they're using the graphics card and everything in there all the time when you're not using the computer. That's absolutely right. And that's the, I've seen that as uh, identified in, in really unique new ways as major browser-based exploit attacks, yeah. which are, we don't compromise your system. What we compromise is the website you're visiting so that while you're reading the pages, you're mining us Bitcoin, or it's usually not Bitcoin. It's one of the smaller currencies, but same yeah. effect. You're, you're mining a digital currency. Um, it is it is impressive how responsive these organizations are to economic incentives. Um, that's why I think it goes to show that there is really no hope in outsmarting from a security posture criminals or state organizations. You've got to be maintain a defensive posture and be ready to identify and respond and if you can't if you don't focus on identification and response if you 
think my security posture is good. I'm going to focus on it, but I really don't know how to identify and I really don't know what to do. We'll figure out if it happens. You're going to be in a really bad place when you get breached. Yeah. Well, I mean, and if you, you look at businesses on the physical security side, as we've been comparing these things back and forth, everyone has, you've got locks in your doors. You may have an alarm in place at your building. If you have expensive equipment inside, then you still have an insurance policy. Mm-hmm. But the, the cybersecurity side of things, you might have a firewall and some intrusion detection, in which is kind of your, your locking door and your alarm. Um, most folks don't have insurance, though, behind that still, especially at the small business level. But even medium and larger businesses may not have comprehensive um, cybersecurity. Certainly, if I look at the, the property and casualty sort of liability and look at the dollars that the cyber insurance market is, it's less than 5% the size of the overall business insurance market for the physical goods. That's right. And so cyber insurance isn't a regulated product. Um, you're pretty much going to be able to get what you can get from a given insurer. And they're going to vary. What I mean by that is they will vary substantially from company to company, insurer to insurer. They used to be really easy to get for a while. I think the, a few insurance companies said, hey, this is a great market. People are asking for it, but not a lot. And we hadn't seen these major breaches that underlined just how expensive a data breach can be. Yeah. And there's this rise in the availability of cyber insurance policies that were fairly comprehensive and had low retentions. Those days are well gone, but it's still a very critical policy to have in your stack. And that goes to part of the response activities is when you respond to a breach, you're pulling your employees away from their daily jobs. You're hiring outside consultants, outside counsel. Those costs can be ruinous to a small or mid-sized business. And having that insurance policy helps cover not just damages, reporting obligations, maybe fines, but those policies can also help cover remediation and the costs that you suffered from pulling employees out of their you know ordinary day jobs. Yeah, you should ask specifically under that about business interruption. Did did this if this interrupted your business? Say mm-hmm. if you're a medical practice and you can't see patients for two days. Like if you're booked up five days a week and you're uh, constantly booked with employees, or I mean if you're constantly booked with patients, if you can't see patients for two days, those two days of revenue are never coming back. Like That's those right. are just gone from the business. That's right. Yeah. There's one other thing I wanted to bring up. You mentioned the the physical comparison. I like that analogy a lot. You know, people have locks, people have doors, people have alarm systems. But in the physical world, they're expecting the police to come and respond to that alarm. In the networking world, there is no police force. There is no state or government entity tasked with your safety. Yeah, the, F- the FBI is not showing up if somebody breaks into your small business healthcare practice. They may not even show up if you if they break into your billion-dollar yeah. companies. Yeah, you can, you can call them, and they'll put you into a, a an overall investigation. So they will be responsive, but they're not going to show up immediately when the alarm gets pulled. Like the police, if you've got an alarm that gets pulled, they are dispatching cop cars immediately. The FBI will respond in time. And they may put you into an overall investigation, but if the criminal is in another country, it, they can't even just, yeah, rush squad cars over there and arrest them. That's absolutely right. And you know we have this world where nation states are attacking our businesses and yeah. there are large organized criminal gangs. And our law enforcement, I'm not saying law enforcement's doing a poor job. They're stuck in the long game of chasing down these organizations. But if you identify a breach, even while it's occurring, you're only able to look to private parties to help you. And I do think there's a bigger question to be asked about whether the United States government should develop some sort of cyber coast guard 
cyber military or cyber civilian protection force that's actively monitoring networks and actively ready to respond to businesses who are being targeted. I think that that's a slippery slope. I mean, we already know that some network, some government agencies have advanced level network monitoring of sort of the internet on a broad scale Um, and inviting the government into do more monitoring might strike people the wrong way. But there's a lot of, there, there being no public, yeah, there's, there being no public resource for cyber response is a you know it's a big gap in protecting our commercial operations in the country. Yeah, it's an interesting one as you talk. I mean about the the nation state attackers, and this could be another whole program uh, all on its own. But if you're a a U.S. based business, let's say, and you believe that a foreign government is trying to break in and steal your intellectual property, you're allowed to defend yourself. You're not allowed to counterattack back to them. Yeah, hacking back. So there was some legislation not long ago that really incited and inflamed passions on this one. The idea started somewhat simply enough, which is if I'm being attacked by a third party, I should be able to attack them and shut down their systems and network. Where it all falls apart is that they're not attacking you from their computers. It's a it's an overly simplistic notion that, you know, I'm punching you, Brett. You should get to punch me back and I'm going to feel it. But really, you know, I'm grabbing your friend's arm and smashing your face with it. And you punch them. You're only hurting them. I'm escaping unscathed. Interesting conversation to continue another time. Yeah, so the physical world analogy to close out. If you're harboring criminals inside your office building, the people will come shut you down if they know you're harboring criminals in the office building. But if you harbor criminals in your network right now, no one's doing anything to shut you down. The internet is a little bit of Wild West and evolving place. Uh, Hopefully you can uh, tune in to more of CyberTalk Radio and Uh, Learn how to protect yourself, your business, your family, and uh, use this uh, technology to make everyone's life a better place.